HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, a sustainable pasture-based dairy farm making award-winning raw cow and goat's milk cheeses. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, March 16th. It's a beautiful day in New York City. And this is my 100th episode of the series. <laughs> Woo, sound effects. Awesome. Thank you, Jack. And this show is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding restaurateur who is considered the king of hospitality. I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as we do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to lead by example. Forget the phrase, do as I say, and instead, think of do as I do. Practice what you believe in, as actions speak louder than words. You can influence and inspire others by walking the walk and not just talking the talk. So be a role model and leader by setting the table. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled and honored to have my guest here, someone who I greatly admire and a true leader. It is Danny Meyer. He's the CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group and the founder of Shake Shack. Danny's impressive restaurant group includes Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, Blue Smoke, Jazz Standard, The Modern, Myelino, Untitled, North and Grill, Marta, and Porchlight, as well as Union Square Events and the consulting business Hospitality Quotient. Danny, his restaurants and chefs have earned an unprecedented 26 James Beard Awards and numerous other accolades, including in 2015, Danny was named to the Time 100 list of the most influential people in the world. His first business book, Setting the Table, is a New York Times bestseller, and he is active 
He's an active national leader in the fight against hunger, serving on the board of Share Our Strength, as well as supporting other initiatives. So welcome, Danny. It's so good to be here, Sherry, and congratulations to you. A hundred episodes. Who knew? One hundred episodes, and the fact that I'm sitting here interviewing you is, I would have never imagined it in a million years, but it's such an honor. Well, thank you. How did you come up with the idea for this show in the first place? The idea came up from doing PR for many years, and I was around my 10-year mark, and I was sort of thinking, I don't know, like, what's not what's next, but, you know, maybe, maybe I should be doing more. And I realized I knew all these incredible people in the industry who worked behind the scenes, had similar clients to me, but provided different services. So that's where the idea came from. And then I approached Heritage Radio, and here we are 100 episodes later. Big deal. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Well, I want to talk about you and how you got into the industry because I know a little. I mean, I know you grew up in St. Louis and initially didn't set out to be a restaurateur. So how did how did the industry, gra- industry grab you? Well, the industry grabbed me because I couldn't stop eating in restaurants. Um, and, and, you know, today... Everybody eats in restaurants. Everybody talks about restaurants. Everybody writes about restaurants and takes pictures of all their meals in restaurants. But it wasn't always like that. And so I was sort of an outlier among my friends and among, you know, just people who I grew up with because that's just not what you did. You you played sports. You did your homework. You listened to, you know, the baseball game on the radio. We spent a lot of time going to parking lots to to get burgers and frozen custard, which was a good thing because that led to Shake Shack later on. But I just, you know, I couldn't ever forget any meal I ever had anywhere. And at the same time, going into the restaurant business was not something that you were supposed to do with your education way back then. It was not considered the kind of valid entrepreneurial pursuit that, that it is today. And so I was literally on the cusp of becoming a lawyer, which would have been the absolute worst thing I ever could have done with my life. Because I don't really like arguing with people, <laughs> and I don't really care about fine print on things. Maybe that's to my detriment. But the reason that I was potentially going to become a lawyer, to the point that I had taken you know all of my Stanley Kaplan classes for my LSATs, was that I loved politics. I was a poli sci major, and and that's what you were supposed to do if you like politics was to become a lawyer, and just. Every single day, I thank God that that didn't happen because I would have hated my career. And instead, I just feel like, you know, the luckiest person I know to have found a career that is just, I, you know, whenever I take a trip somewhere, people say, is it work or pleasure? And I say, yes, because wherever, even if it's work, I'm going out and I'm learning and I'm eating and I'm, I'm tasting things and meeting people. And it's just what I love to do. Well, I'm certainly glad you didn't become a lawyer. Uh, You certainly inspire a lot of people with your hospitality approach and everything you do. And I I think loving your job is is a key to success. So you've been extremely successful with, with all these restaurants. I had to name them all. But let's go back to Union Square Cafe, which you opened in 1985, near 27. How did that come about? Union Square Cafe was the restaurant that came about after having decided not to um, not to apply to any law schools, what I did was to take a restaurant management class uh, for about six or seven weeks, kind of just to stick my toe in the water. And it was one of those things you, you know, back in those days you would find 
little pamphlets for these classes on the street corner. Not, it wasn't the learning annex, but it was one step away from that. And I took this class, and I said, I kind of like it. And then I got a job for 214 bucks a week working in an Italian seafood restaurant called Pesca, which was on 22nd Street between Broadway and, um, and Park Avenue South. And I had never even explored that neighborhood. Well, of course, I've built my entire life around that neighborhood <laughs> all these years later. But I decided just to find out, you know, do I like this or not? And I was the lunch, I was the assistant lunch manager. And I said to myself, I got to get this out of my system because I'm either going to want to do this or not. But if, if I don't at least try, I'm going to probably kick myself for the rest of my life. And I loved it. And after about seven or eight months of working as the assistant lunch manager on the front door, welcoming guests and seating guests and typing the specials and getting the specials copied and checking in the waiters and, you know, all that great stuff, I got a chance to work in the kitchen because I really love to cook. And I wasn't sure whether my entry point into the business would be as a cook or as a, as a manager. And I was also kind of afraid to tell my family that all these years of putting me through college and high school were, were leading to being a restaurant guy, because that's not what I was supposed to do. So anyway, to make a long story short, I kept on my fantasy that it would be slightly safer to tell them that I was going to be a chef than that I was going to be a restaurateur. So I got a job in Bordeaux as a kitchen stagiaire two different restaurants and also spent some time in Rome and also Bologna and in Milan. And I came back after, I don't think it was probably more than four months. Um, so now I've had seven months experience in a dining room, four months experience working in kitchens in Europe. And I set out to open this restaurant. And then I got gathered the courage to tell my parents that I was probably not going to be the chef. But I took that fantasy Right up till like the first month we were open at Union Square Cafe, I was actually wearing chef's whites on some nights over my Brooks Brothers suit. And, you know, the best thing I did was to just get rid of that and, you know, say, guys, this is not I'm not a chef. I love food. I love cooking. But I got someone way better than me in the kitchen. And from that point on, um, I still spend a lot of time with our chefs and in our kitchens, and we talk about food all the time. Um, but you're never going to see me pretending that I'm anything other than who I am. It's a it's it's a it's a great story, and the fact that you have the back of the house experience, I'm sure it definitely helps in everything you do. And it reminds me a bit of my experience after college, where I lived in Chicago, and I decided I want to go to cooking school. And, yeah, my parents thought I was pretty crazy. Uh, but look look where I've gotten to today. I mean, it just might, you know, you don't really know where you're going to end up. But it's also interesting that you thought it was safer to tell them you were going to be a chef than a restaurateur. Uh, you know, it's a, probably a different a different era of, of explaining to parents what people are doing nowadays. <laughs> but Well, I think that, you know, back then we had started to hear... We, we obviously didn't have the food network back then, but we we had started to hear about some, quote-unquote, celebrity chefs, people like Alice Waters and Paul Prudhomme. Um, Wolfgang Puck was, was around back then, and there were some others that maybe your listeners haven't heard of, like Mark Miller out on the West Coast, Jeremiah Tower. I've heard of them, but Joyce Goldstein. Yeah, yeah, so 
Um, but what we hadn't heard about were restaurateurs other than people who had been doing this their whole lives or they'd grown up in a restaurant family. But you didn't hear people actually actively pursuing that as a, as a career. Right, right. Things have, have changed a bit. So let me ask you my question I had from last week on episode 99 I had on Catherine Sheldon. She's a producer at New York Live NBC. So she wants to know, when you were opening Union Square Cafe, who was the person that left the biggest impression on you that still sticks with you today? Wow, that's a great question. You know, interestingly, it's um, some combination of my dad and my maternal grandfather. And neither one of them wanted me to go into the business, but... What they don't know, and they're they're unfortunately both dead right now, but what they don't know is the degree to which they actually each impacted me. So my dad did not want me to go into the business, um, even though he was the guy that first introduced me to my love for Europe via his travel company. He had a, he had a driving tour company through the French countryside, and so I got to go to eat in France when I was a little kid, and I got to be a tour guide for my dad uh, at the age of 20 based in Rome and my love for cooking and my love for showing people a good time via what I love to eat and drink came from my dad even though he didn't want me to do it and then my grandfather thought this was the worst business in the world and you know he he didn't really appreciate restaurants anyway but from what he had heard it was a terrible business to get into And, and yet what I got from him was a sense that your restaurant or your business or whatever you're doing will never rise to a higher level than the degree to which you care for your community. And uh, and and so I, I think that my love for food and wine and my love for people and community came from those two people. And uh, the good news is that I think before each one of them died, they saw that, that I was loving it and my dad never saw more than one restaurant. He never got to see Gramercy Tavern. Uh, my grandfather uh, lived a really long life, and he got to see, in fact, he ended up investing in 11 Madison Park and Tabla before he died. Uh, and I, I know for a fact that they were each really proud. I'm sure. Excellent answer. So I need, I need probably a four-hour show to go through everything you've done in your career but why don't we jump ahead right now 30 years to what's happening with union square cafe because there's a relaunch a new location opening soon i can't wait i can't wait either i'm excited so um when when is the reopening planned for and how did i know the space is on the other side of union square cafe and uh well, the first, the first thing before we talk about right. the Union new Square one Park. is what happened with the first one. So we had this just remarkable 30-year run. We turned 30 last October at the original Union Square Cafe. But, you know, the, the good news is also the bad news. The good news is that we had obviously made a, a good bet on a good neighborhood to make a bet on. It was $8 a square foot when I took over that space in 1985. And you know you're making a good bet on a neighborhood, or at least a risky bet, when you name your restaurant after the neighborhood and everyone laughs at you. So when everyone said, why in the world would you 
name your restaurant after one of the danger, most dangerous neighborhoods in all of New York City, <laughs> which which it was in 1985. Yeah, it's hard to imagine now. Um, and then, of course, $8 a square foot over the course of 30 years turned into something just shy of $300 a square foot. So a restaurant that starts off by trying to offer really wonderful food at a very, very good value um, and pay its people well, etc., it becomes harder and harder to do that when increasingly you're, you're, you find yourself working for the landlord rather than you know everybody else along the way. So we made a really tough a couple of decisions. The first one was in no way, shape, or form was Union Square Cafe going to die. We were going to keep this thing going one way or the other. But then the question was do we bite the bullet and do it in its original space, which was actually my preference. Um, even though it would have been really hard with that kind of extra rent and the uh, the additional mm-hmm. investment we would have had to make in a really old building it would have been tough to give people raises and promotions, et cetera. Or do we find a new place to do it? We chose to try to find a new place. It took us a year and a half to find the right space that we could legitimately call Union Square Cafe. We saw lots of spaces that you know you would have more accurately called Long Island City Cafe <laughs> or Bushwick Cafe or you know even Theater District Cafe yeah. or Upper East Side Cafe. But that's not what we wanted to do. And and so we did land this this opportunity in a space that had been two restaurants over the past 35 years, formerly City Crab, and before that it was called Cafe Iguana. And it's perfect. It's it's exactly as close to the green market uh, as Union Square Cafe is, at least from mm-hmm. the northeast corner to the southwest corner. Right. And uh, what that means is that for our lunch regulars. Um, who are coming from work, obviously, they're going to find it just as easy to get to. And then the people who have come for years and years will also have that chance. We're hoping to have it open, you know. I I hate to put a date on it because every time I do that, we find something in the skeleton of the building that we've got to, you know, it takes a little bit more time. But The nature of opening restaurants in New York City. Yeah, I'd... Let's just put it this way. Stay tuned, um, and okay. it's going to be awesome. And the goal of the, of the new Union Square Cafe is is going to be if we can hit this magical balance so that for people who know the restaurant and love the restaurant and have memories, they're going to go there and they're going to feel that same human energy that, that they missed, that, that made them feel so good. And yet they're going to find something different and fresh and it's really hard to do both of those things, and we've we've kind of named this trying to create a thirty-year-old startup, and <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a rare thing to do both of those things. But we're excited to to do both of those things. We're excited for your first visit to say this is recognizably Union Square Cafe, and yet it's not. I'm excited for my first visit too, and I visited. I mean, I've been to Union Square Cafe many times, but I. I did a, I guess a, you'd call a closing visit shortly before before it was um, it was closing and your your new location opening just so I could embrace that experience and looking forward to checking it out when it does open. I'm also looking forward to at some point getting out to Los Angeles because I believe you just got back last night from opening in West Hollywood, your first West Coast Shake Shack. Congratulations. It was so exciting, Sherry. I can't even tell you. You know, 
One, one thing I've learned as um, Shake Shack has opened places in different cities across the country is that you may or may not know this, but Shake Shack's the first public company born in New York City since TGI Fridays. Really? Which was I didn't. A long, long time ago. And part of the reason for that is that what works in New York does not necessarily work in other parts of the country. We have very different tastes. We don't have, you know, we don't have every person's taste. And and the other thing that we've learned is that whether we like it or not, or whether we believe it or not, Shake Shack comes into a new city as a New York brand. And it doesn't matter that I'm from St. Louis. It doesn't matter that, you know, we, well, New York has a brand beyond New York. And that brand is often associated with things like the New York Yankees, Donald Trump, <laughs> things that equal arrogance. And, and the last thing another food culture seems to want in another city is an arrogant New Yorker coming in. And, of course, that's not who we are by personality, but that's what the New York brand does for Shake Shack. And so one of the things we never feel uh, when we go to a new city is a sense of overconfidence, but rather to try to approach it with a great deal of humility. And you honestly never know how a city's going to react to it. So yesterday's opening in, in West Hollywood was unbelievably uplifting. First of all, it was people started camping out early in the morning to get in line. And That's cool. You've got to understand that, that what's compounding things is that California is the birthplace of everything from McDonald's to In-N-Out Burger. And so there would be very good reason for people to say, you know, who the heck are these New York guys coming in here? It ended up being the busiest and most successful first day we've ever had at any Shake Shack anywhere. And I think part of that was a real humble attitude, which is that when we grow Shake Shack, we want to be part of someone's community, not something that was imposed upon it. And uh, I'm really proud of the team at Shake Shack for how well they did that. It's awesome. I, I'm, I am excited to go check it out. And you've opened Shake Shacks around the world. So I feel, um, I don't know if you've had this, this, you've probably had this feeling for a lot. I mean, you're, you're in Dubai, you're, you're everywhere. Um, and I think the brand speaks for itself that people are embracing it and not just thinking of it as a New York arrogant brand, even though um, I guess they could. But I think it also comes into you and your hospitality and what your company is about. Well, thank you for saying that. And just so that we're really clear, I wasn't saying that Shake Shack in and of itself is perceived as being an arrogant brand. I just think that yeah. no, New, I didn't New think York, the way New York plays in some other cities, whether it's yes. Philadelphia or Boston or Chicago or L.A., is, you know, there's a real pride, especially with food and local um, culinary talent. They don't want to be told by the big the big city of New York how to do things. And we are hyper aware of that. And so that's never how we go into any kind of new new town. Yes, and and you did explain that that clearly and I think um I think that's a great approach. And I just wanna throw in a little story out there that I was in in Japan recently in in Kyoto and uh 
went over to the the front desk to ask them to make a reservation for me for lunch on the day I was checking out of the hotel. And the response was, we can't make a reservation for you because you'll no longer be a guest with us at the hotel. Hmm. And I turned to my friend, who was Pichet Ong, who I was traveling with, and I said, this is so un-Danny Meyer-like. Like, that was just the words that came out, like... Danny would make a reservation for me. So I just want to say, like, you and your influence, it, it, it carries with me. And I feel hospitality, you you spread the hospitality. And I, I come to expect it from other places. So just wanted to share Thank that. You. Thank You're you. welcome. And on that note, we're going to take a little break here. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about tipping. Stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, a sustainable pasture-based dairy farm making award-winning raw cow and goat's milk cheeses in a not-too-far corner of Vermont. For Consider Bardwell, sustainability means caring for the land, raising their animals well, reducing waste, and helping their community, all in the name of happy animals and people and delicious cheese. Consider Bardwell Farm is proud to support Heritage Radio Network as part of their food and farming community and a proud sponsor of all good conversations had over great cheese. Find them at your local cheese counter at New York City Green Markets and online at considerbardwellfarm.com. My super superstitious Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Danny Meyer, the CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group and the founder of Shake Shack. And uh, I think we should talk a little bit about tipping and hospitality-included program that you are now doing at USHG restaurants. Or maybe perhaps you've always you've always had hospitality, but the tipping, um, the tipping change that's happening, so... How's it going? <laughs> so far, it's going as well as it could possibly be going. We we launched it at the Modern, one restaurant, because while we are fully committed to why this is important, it's a dif- it's a big difference, and we really wanted to make sure to to get things as right as we possibly could before unleashing it with the rest of our company. But it's gone so well at the Modern that we've now launched it at a second restaurant, Myolino, and that's been going for about three weeks at this point, and that's going really, really well. It, it's something that um, I don't think in our lifetimes we will ever have a problem going to a restaurant that, that has tipping. Tipping is not going to go away in every restaurant in the world, um, but I think that its time has come um, to really examine it, and we felt that the time had come in our company for a whole host of reasons, some philosophical, um, some financial, um, but I would mostly say um, for the very survival of, of trying to do things well, the tipping system itself, uh, we came to the conclusion, was the major culprit 
that would would potentially end the fine dining restaurant industry as we know it. And I know that sounds like a big, big thing to say, but you cannot uh, have a city like New York where the cost of living is as high as it is. And when I talk about New York, I'm talking about all boroughs, but let's talk about Manhattan for a minute. What if I were to tell you that 30 years ago, a cook was making about 10 to 15 percent less than they're making today, 30 years later, and the cost of living had meanwhile gone up well over 200 percent since that time? You would say, well, why in the world would any good cook want to work in Manhattan? And then if I furthermore told you that a good cook today doesn't have to work in Manhattan the way they once did, you if you if you really wanted to have a culinary career 30 years ago, you had to get a job in Manhattan. You had to have that on your resume. Um, today, you don't have to because invariably, no matter where you live, whether it's in Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx or in Cincinnati or St. Louis or Louisville, Kentucky – or Charlotte, North Carolina, there is a really good restaurant within a couple blocks of your house. And if you're good at what you do, you will be in demand because there's such a, happily, there's such an increased demand to eat good food, you know, cooked by people who care about ingredients who are, who are really doing it the right way. But nobody's holding you back any longer because you don't have Manhattan on your resume. So we had come to a point where... 21 years ago, I started questioning tipping as a, in fact, I wrote about this in the Union Square Cafe newsletter 21 years ago as as something that seemed archaic. I hated the master-servant relationship it was creating between servers and guests in the restaurant, some of whom felt that they needed to hold the sword of Damocles over a server's head for two and a half hours. You better be nice to me or I'm going to give you a bad tip which is completely ridiculous to think that, you know, a server, the the implication is that if a server had a station of of five tables, that the server was actually making a calculation in his or her mind as the night began, which of these five tables is likely to punish me the most and which of these tables is likely to reward me the most. And that's where I'm going to spend my attention at the expense of all the others. Well, Implicit in that equation, which is completely preposterous, is that the server has to judge people. Could right. be based on all kinds of isms as well. And it's just a horrible dynamic that doesn't have to be, even if we weren't talking about the economics. And how about the economics that have driven a wedge between the service staff and the kitchen staff, because in that same 30-year period of time during which kitchen workers have been paid because of the system, and I can explain why, because a lot of people say, why don't, you just, why don't you just pay all of your cooks more and keep tipping? There's a mathematical reason that, that will be very evident to you in a second when I explain why you don't just do that. But in that same 30-year period, Tipped employees in New York City are are actually doing quite well, which is fantastic. We we love that. Um, The reason they're doing well is that not only have many prices gone up quite dramatically over these 30 years because of the cost of energy, the cost of beef, the cost of of dairy, the cost of everything has gone up 
look at wine prices, for example. But the tip is a multiplier of those higher prices. So even the multiplier number has gone up from 15 to 17 to 20, 21%. Right. So now you're multiplying 21% times a much higher menu price. If you simply raised the cook's um, um, hourly wage without eliminating tipping, what happens is that menu prices now have to go up yet again to cover the increased labor in the kitchen. And as menu prices go up again, the tipped employees make more money. And now the guest is going to pay twice because they're going to pay the additional menu cost. So you could pay your cooks the right amount of money. And they're going to pay the additional multiplier cost. And meanwhile, you've actually driven an even greater wedge between tipped employees and non-tipped employees. So for a whole host of reasons, um, we said the best way to do this is to do the most honest thing. And that is to is to have menu prices that that show everything that they the one menu price um, expresses what did I pay for rent what did I pay for flowers what did I pay for linen what did I pay for the cost of the dinner what did I pay for the cost of the wine what did I pay for the reservationist and the cook and the dishwasher and yes it's time that restaurateurs take responsibility for paying for their own service staff and don't put that responsibility on the public. The difficulty with this whole thing, though, is that this has been going on in the United States since slavery because tipping was actually invented in this country as a way for restaurants and Pullman train company to, to say it's not slavery. We're not going to pay these guys. As a matter of fact, restaurants right after that were not paying their waiters anything. But because of tipping, you can't say it's slavery because we're giving them the opportunity to be freelance um, employees, so to speak, that you're going to pay instead of us. Well, in 43 states in America today, that $0 an hour for tipped employees has gone all the way up to $2.13. In New York, happily, it's gone up to $7.50. We think, by the way, that there should be one minimum wage for everybody, that it shouldn't be a separate minimum wage for tipped employees. But that's where we are today. And by eliminating tipping, it puts us in a position where we can now pay our cooks $2 more as a starting uh, hourly wage, which is huge, Sherry, because we were losing cooks over a 25-cent increase that they could get at another restaurant. And am I right that you now have a list of people who want to be cooks at your restaurant? Oh, my gosh. So if you take uh, the modern where we first started this, Chef Abram Bissell, who's just a fantastic person, a fantastic chef, two-star Michelin restaurant, um, was 14 cooks down uh, for the previous six months before we instituted hospitality included. 14 cooks down. That meant that everybody was working at least time and a half right. and maybe even more which is not a healthy thing for anyone's balance of life or health and he now has a backlog of a hundred cooks <laughs> who want to work there and what does that mean that means he gets to be even more selective about who gets hired mm -hmm. and that means that there's less turnover that means that when you have less turnover the food gets better and we think that that's going to lead to you know more people wanting to dine at the modern and so far so good 
Yeah. It, well, I just I I popped in the modern this weekend to the bar by myself, and uh, I had delicious scallops. I have to say, when I was looking at the menu, first I saw scallops thirty nine dollars, and I was like, "Do I want to treat myself to that?" Well, it's a nice restaurant, and then for the moment, I had forgotten that tip was included in that, and then I it dawned on me, and I was like. It's a very fair price. I'm going. I'm going to go for it. And it was just. I think it's having grown up in America and dined out a lot. Like you just, you're used to the tipping factor and the value, the perception. Um, it's a change, you know, to think when you look at a menu and you look at prices. My initial reaction wasn't that that included the tip and that was the total thing. So I think it's a matter of people getting accustomed to it. And I think you've been very transparent and um, open to dialogue having the city hall town meetings town meetings town hall right mm-hmm. you know different like you and you and in the check presenters there's nice notes like you're very much telling people what you're doing explaining it and I think it's been a, a very nice um, way of making this change and the whole industry is watching because you're a leader and you're doing this and People are are beginning to to follow in the same in the same direction. It's true, and and I also think that implicit in your experience is a reality, which is that it would be completely foolhardy to say that change is easy. When when in the course of human events was change easy? Um, it's we've all been brought up, especially you know. I can't say all millennials have been brought up thinking about tipping all the time. As a matter of fact, people who take Uber or whatever have have learned that you can actually rate a performance with zero through five stars, um, and that's a way to give feedback. It doesn't have to be by a tip. But I think a lot of people were brought up to believe, you know what, you should always leave a really generous tip because otherwise that person can't pay their rent. And, in fact, that's true with the tipping system. Yeah, and, and I, I and still had the desire to tip also when I, I was leaving because the service was great and I'm what is I'm accustomed I, to. I, I bet you did and and my question to you would be when was the last time that you tipped a cook? Um, not that you can yeah. not that you can legally but if you loved the food the cook was not making any more money whatsoever. And so it's a shift for people and we acknowledge that that saying thank you to somebody really is very very meaningful to them it's also a shift to trust that the restaurant is paying their service staff enough money to make the service staff feel happy because i promise you right now that if we try to institute hospitality included and our service staff our formerly tipped employees are less happy you're going to feel that and you're not going to want to go back and so we're not playing any games with this, Sherry. There's no – we're not saying hospitality included and then leaving a line for a gratuity on your credit card bill. There's no line for a gratuity. In the same way that we have learned to be responsible employers with respect to cooks and reservationists and maitre d's, we're now required to be responsible employees for our service staff. And um, – they are really proud about that. They're really, really proud. It's hard. It's a different way of being paid. One of the things we did was to guarantee our staff that for a minimum of three months, 
we would make sure that their income was exactly equal to what it would have been in the old system, which was a 21% average tip. And I think that was an important thing because during the new time during which people were trying to get used to this, they could they could see a parallel economy and they could see that in many cases they actually did better with our new system. Well said. No comment on that beyond. We're going to take a little break here and we're going to come back and we're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Danny Meyer. It's time for my speed round game. What this is is I name a couple of things, either or situations, such as chocolate or vanilla, and you just pick your preference. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? <laughs> Can I ever say both? There are no rules in my game, so yes, you may. There are some nights when there's just nothing better than eating home. Okay. But, but I sure love going out. So. <laughs> How about wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Large plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Communal table. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another vote there. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive charge. I thought you'd say that. I do want to say, though, that if a restaurant has a tipping policy, uh, you can expect me to be a generous tipper. I would expect that, too. How about Madison Square Park or any other park in the world? Madison Square Park. I mean, you, that's that's easy. Yeah. Well, I tried to give you some easy ones. How about crinkle cut or fresh hand cut fries? <laughs> crinkle cuts. I learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> okay. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or St. Louis? All. All right. Excellent. I'm not. I'm not good with either or because. I kind of go about life wanting it all, and it's he, he, the the best way to to love New York is to be able to leave New York, and the best way to love eating out is to be able to eat home. I don't know. Just I'm with you. I'm with you on that. It is. A, it's it's come to be a more challenging game 
for people than I, I initially thought. But I want to do, before we talk some industry news, I have a little analysis that my father helped me with because somewhere along this road he became the official scorekeeper of this game and and he he does that on his own so this isn't an exact science because um at the beginning i wasn't asking all of the same ones mostly i was but i skipped a few and some shows i had more than one guest but i just want to share from the 99 episodes i've done winning two to one were eat out over eat in Chef's Counter over Communal Table, and Manhattan over Brooklyn. And then more popular were wine, a la carte, and small plates. What I really want to point out is on the tipping and all-inclusive charge, because I have been asking that since 2014 when I started this show. Wow. So, episodes 1 through 50, 44 people said tipping. Four were all-inclusive, and there were a few, like, boats and depends. Episodes 51 to 99... 30 said tipping, 16 all-inclusive, and a couple depends boats. So that's four times as many all-inclusive in 2015 beyond, which is interesting, right? Yeah, and how about episode 100? And episode 100 goes in there, so we're up to 17 there we go. and a both. I want credit. No, but I noticed it. Like, as doing this game, there were all the answers were kind of all over the place. And then the let's tipping go, one, I noticed. Let's just go back to that for one second. Okay. Um, when, you, when you got your bill... The, the, what we've heard from a lot of people is the menu prices are a jolt at the beginning because they've gone up mm-hmm. to include what you would have otherwise left as a tip because hospitality is now included. But then when you sign your name on that check and you realize, but wait, I'm not adding 20% or 21%, it should end up feeling like just as good of a value as ever. And I want to ask you, how did that moment feel? It did. No, absolutely. It when you it's it's a per, it was a perception thing. When I looking at the menu and seeing the prices, it seemed more expensive than maybe I wanted to be spending at the moment. But when the check arrived and I saw and you're not going to add I would have added, you know, 20% plus tip on there, it would have been equally if not more than what the price was so the I saw the value when the ch- when the check came, I did. Um, so I'm just getting used to it too, and I'll definitely be back. I've realized somehow I've never eaten in the Modern's main back dining room, so I'm I'm going to be coming in, in again soon. You are in for a treat. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely um, it's I love all your restaurants. Really, Thank really, you. really, really great, and so different too. Styles of cuisine and. You cover you cover a lot. So let's talk briefly about the announcement yesterday. Uh, James Beard Awards, 2016 finalists. So there was restaurant chef, book, broadcast, jur- and journalism. And the award ceremony, the restaurant and chef ones will be on May 2nd in Chicago, returning to Chicago again. And the book, broadcast, and journalist awards are April 26th in New York City. So this is exciting. I saw two of them on from your from your club on the list. You had uh, Michael Anthony for his single subject book V is is for vegetables, and uh, that that's a finalist. And also Untitled for outstanding restaurant design. So congratulations. Which is the restaurant where Mike Anthony is the executive chef. Very so, true. So he's had a good. 
good last couple of years for sure. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a great design. It's very welcoming. Thank you. So uh, are, are you going to be out there at the awards this year? I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it or not this year. Um, but I know that even if I'm not, there's going to be at least six people from Union Square Hospitality Group out there. Yeah, well, I'm I'm planning to go, and I mean, there's so many so many categories. Uh, I guess I'll just bring up the best new restaurant. They have Death and Taxes in Raleigh. They have Laundera- Laundrette in Austin, Liho Liho Yacht Club in San Francisco, Shia in New Orleans, Staple House in Atlanta, and Wild Air in New York City. So. I know. I don't know. I've I've been to Wild Air. I haven't been to the others, but um, I'm I'm always excited to to see who yeah. wins and just to be a it's part exciting. of it. It really is exciting. So, all right, we're gonna take another break here, and we're gonna come back. I'm gonna do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience, which this week I went to Cafe Ultra Paradiso. Here's the rundown. Location, 234 Spring Street in Soho, New York City. The concept, an attractive eatery from the Estella team drawing on traditional Italian cooking. The owners, beverage director Thomas Carter and chef Ignacio Matos. Why did I go? Because I'm a fan of Estella, and this is a hot new opening. My experience. So I arrived around 8 on Thursday, and the place was happening. I could feel the energy as soon as I entered. The bar was packed, and I immediately saw a familiar face. It was photographer Evan Sung. I chatted with him before a bar seat opened up, and then I was able to dine there. What did I get? Well, the menu looked fantastic. I went with the fish crudo with caper berries and lemon, and fennel salad with Castel Vetrano olives and provolone. That was highly recommended to me by my bartender. I also had a club soda. My take, the crudo, which was fluke, was light and delicious. The fennel salad was excellent. It had a nice balance of flavor with the cheese. The scene was Estella fans. Perfect for dinner with friends or solo dining at the bar. Interesting tidbit. Estella not only won over New Yorkers, but President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama dined there in 2014, causing quite a frenzy on Houston Street. Personal fun fact, 
I also ran into episode 98's tea curator, Jeff Ruzzo, who is now working there a few days a week, and episodes 48's design and branding pro, Carla Siegel. It's always fun to run into industry people while, while dining at new restaurants. So the cost was $36, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Absolutely. I need to try the pasta. Their website is ultraparadiso.com. Danny, I read and saw, I've seen it more than once, about how Union Square Cafe, uh, you were big on solo dining, or, or kind of part of that initiative, which as a solo dining pro, I, I admire a lot. <laughs> oh, just yeah, to bring no, that up. <laughs> I, I like to be by myself, treat myself to a restaurant every now and then. And what's great about solo diners is that they're obviously not there to sell something to someone else or introduce their in-laws to one another. They're there because this is something they wanted to do for themselves. And it's the highest compliment that anyone could pay a restaurant. And so I think that it, it provides a great opportunity for a restaurant to to really roll out the hospitality carpet. And especially since so many restaurants don't, unfortunately, a lot of restaurants look at a solo diner as lost revenue as opposed to somebody who could potentially be their greatest advocate. Yeah, well, I like to hear that, and I agree. Okay, it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Josh Beckerman, known as the Foodie Magician. He has a new podcast he's doing called Still Eating. And uh, so, Danny, what would you like to ask Josh? I'd like to ask him a lot of questions. Um <laughs> Like, how did you do that? And how did you do that? And get out. How did you do that? But since I can't ask that because he would never tell me, I would like to ask him if he would ever consider coming up with a trick where an iPhone could actually griddle a hamburger. <laughs> and I, I hope he can never figure that out. Okay. I will I will find out. I mean, he does do magic. Maybe he can make it happen. I'll have to wait and see. I mean, your iPhone can do practically anything else. It can order one, but it can't cook one. No. And as long as as long as our as long as you got to go to restaurants or eat food that a real person cooked and it can't just happen digitally, our industry's in for a good long future. Yes, indeed. And that is the show. So thank you so much for coming out here. Thank you so much. And congratulations again for your 100th episode, which is now a wrap. It is. I'll throw out another quick story. How when after I read your uh, Setting the Table book when it came out, I don't know if you remember this. You, well, I'll just say you do remember this. I wrote you a letter about about being in PR and basically saying like if you ever as my last chapter i read the book i was like what's my last chapter even though i wasn't really fixing a mistake but i was like i'm gonna write a last chapter letter to danny basically introducing myself i wrote it sent it slow mail and two weeks later i got a letter back in the mail from you basically saying i'm impressed with your career congratulations you know nice to meet you we don't need your services but um you know, best of luck. And it, I tell this story all the time because I couldn't believe that you had written me back a letter. And, um, I can't believe now today that I'm hosting a radio show Mm. that you are my guest. So I just, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sherry. 
So my guest today has been Danny Meyer, CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group and the founder of Shake Shack. Their website is ushgnyc.com and shakeshack.com. You can follow on Twitter, Instagram at Danny at DH Meyer, DH Meyer at ushgnyc at Shake Shack. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry, at Heritage underscore Radio. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. As a reminder, all of our shows are archived on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on Stitcher and iTunes. Now, just a heads up. Next week, I'm doing a roundup of my back-to-back wine and food festival weekends for my show. Those are at South Beach and Charleston. So, the Foodie Magician will be on on March 30th. Thanks again to Danny. Thanks to his wonderful publicist, Kate Lindquist, for helping me set things up. And thanks to Jack, Allison, and Aaron and the whole Heritage Radio Network team. I'm so proud to be now be a part of the 100 Club here at Heritage Radio Network, and I look forward to the next 100. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.